In 2011, Japan was rocked by a magnitude 9.1 earthquake. It triggered a tsunami 130 feet high, killing 18,000 people and causing untold damage. Disaster in the Pacific. Earthquake, one of the worst in history. The scenes have been absolutely unrelenting devastation. You can see the Tonight we're watching the rising death toll, a nuclear plant in trouble. The aftershocks continue, the world is watching. And now, Japan. as sea levels continue to rise, even weaker earthquakes could cause tsunamis with similar destruction. In the future, as we raise baseline sea levels, the types of tsunamis that can cause damage along the coast are created by smaller magnitude earthquakes. So the tsunamis can be smaller and cause the same impact because the sea level is higher and the coastline is more vulnerable. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the ripple effects of sea rise. The U.S. hasn't been struck by a major tsunami in hundreds of years, but we might be due for one in the not-too-distant future. Tina Dura and Robert Weiss are Virginia Tech professors of natural hazards. They say the West Coast isn't prepared for the next tsunami. Tina and Robert, you've been studying tsunamis for years. Which are the biggest tsunamis you've ever seen in your lifetime? When I was an undergraduate student, we had the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami which killed over a quarter of a million people uh, along the coastlines of Sumatra, Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, et cetera. So that was a big event when I was studying geosciences and that left a really big impression on me and kind of motivated my future steps as I looked for grad school opportunities and such. I can't imagine. I saw what the uh, 2011 tsunami did to Japan and that was horrifying. I cannot imagine what being in that zone of the 2004 tsunami did inside you. So part of what I do is looking at geologic records of past tsunamis. And so I didn't go to the area where the 2004 struck the coast. We actually targeted a part of the Sumatran coastline that was south of that, just because it's an area where it's thought that a future earthquake similar to the 2004 could occur. And so just being in that area and Kind of being around people who experience earthquakes often was definitely interesting. And there's a lot of, definitely a lot of trauma throughout the country and the region following the 2004 earthquake. And also a lot of additional awareness after 2004 of the potential for that area, that, that subduction zone to make these big earthquakes and tsunamis. I think we all held our breath on New Year's Day this year when a 7.5 earthquake hit Japan New Year's Day. Did that trigger a tsunami? Yes, it did. Albeit a very small tsunami, because it was not on the east side of Japan. It occurred on the west side of Japan. And that was a relatively small earthquake. It was a 7.6. Yet it created locally a tsunami that could be measured along the coasts of the Sea of Japan. What does it look like to see a tsunami in person? How's a tsunami different from a giant regular wave you'd see at the beach? If you are standing on the beach, you know, on a beautiful blue day and the waves are coming in really nicely and break offshore and you compare that to an image when the day is a little windier and the waves are a little bigger and you see very much the waves in the front, you know, in front of your feet, for example, they are brown. That means there are lots of sand in it, you know, just suspended from the, from the ocean floor as the waves approach the shore. Now, that's not a tsunami. It's much worse. So imagine a slur, a black slur that moves with 10 or 12 meters a second all around you up to a height of 5 to 8 meters and inundates the land and destroys anything in its way, if you will, because there's so much sediment in the water column. It's no longer water. It's mud, it's sand, and it's completely at capacity, which means no more sand or mud can be in a water column. That is what a tsunami looks like. Can you tell whether in the U.S. we're due for a large tsunami at any point? Are we relatively protected from that, East Coast and West? Well, the East Coast of the United States is uh, relatively protected because uh, it borders on the Atlantic Ocean 
which does have very uh, limited seismic sources that would be able to create large tsunamis. On the scale of the subduction zones around the Pacific, so we're coming to the west coast of the United States, and there's always the possibility of very large earthquakes to occur and with subsequent large tsunamis. So we have a subduction zone off of the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., off of Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and Southern Canada. So there is a subduction zone there that can generate tsunamis and earthquakes of a similar size as what happened in 2011 in Japan. It's just that it hasn't produced an event in our historical or instrumental history. And what we do have there as evidence of these past events is geologic evidence along the coastline. So evidence of tsunami inundation in the form of sand beds that have sand has been transported inland and deposited in these estuaries. We can do coring investigations and discover evidence of past inundation. But these events occurred, the most recent one is 1700 CE, so about 300 years ago or so. And then prior to that, we have evidence of at least 12 up to 20 large earthquakes probably magnitude nine or even larger that have occurred there that are in the geologic record. But we don't have a recent event that people have experienced. And so although a lot of residents there are aware of the subduction zone being offshore, the preparedness and the awareness is lower than somewhere like Japan or Chile or even Alaska that has these moderate size to large events um, that have occurred more recently. But that depends also on where you are around the Pacific. For example, Japan has had written records for a thousand years or so. So, for example, they have very, very well documented the impact of the 1700 tsunami that Tina was referring to, which is in Japan called the orphan tsunami because they were used to having earthquakes and then a tsunami and that tsunami occurred without earthquake which was a, a new thing for Japanese folks there. And so, so in other areas of the Pacific, we have, we have extensive written records of these events going back. Tina, are we due for one in the Pacific Northwest? I know we always say we're due for a large earthquake there. Are we due for a tsunami? And where would the earthquake have to occur for it to hit the Northwest in a significant way? It's hard to say exactly when the next earthquake and tsunami there will occur, but there have, you know, there's been 300 years or so, a little bit more since the last earthquake and tsunami that we have evidence for along the coast. And if we look further into the geologic record back in time, we see that these earthquakes and tsunamis occur or recur every 250 to 500 years or so. If you average out the recurrence interval, it's it's more around 500 years. Some can occur more closely spaced, and sometimes the interval can be longer, more like 800 years in between events. And so there is some variability there, and so it makes it really hard to predict when the next event would occur. But we're definitely in the time where it could, you know, happen any day, or it could be another 50 to 100 years. And where would it need to originate for it to hit the angle of the U.S. Pacific Northwest? So for the Pacific Northwest, the largest impact would be from an earthquake on the Cascadia subduction zone that is offshore of Northern California, Oregon, Washington, Southern Canada. So if that fault ruptures in a larger than, say, magnitude 8 to 8.5, you could get a significant tsunami that affects the coastlines bordering the fault. You can also get tsunamis that impact the west coast of the U.S. and the Pacific Northwest that occur in Alaska or in Japan. So they can be sourced at places across the entire ocean basin, but those tsunami waves can still propagate across the ocean and impact the coastlines in the Pacific Northwest and also down into California, for example. And those, the biggest sources, so for let's say Southern California, for example, the subduction zone that can produce the biggest waves there would be the Alaska Aleutian subduction zone, kind of in the central part of that subduction zone. You predict that with sea levels rising significantly around the world, that in 50 to 70 years, tsunamis will also be more damaging. Why is that? So when climate-driven sea levels rise, you know, your high tide levels go up, the coastlines become more sensitive or, or vulnerable to any additional waves or inundations. So it's just like how future storm surges are predicted to be more severe, how these swells that have affected the California coast were more severe and more erosive. 
may cause more damage because the background sea level has also risen. So anything on top of that is more impactful. And so in the same way, any tsunamis that occur in, let's say, 50 to 100 years where sea level may rise up to a meter, everything now is easier to inundate. So even if you bring in a tsunami that's one to two meters high, that's sourced from the Alaska subduction zone and propagates across the Pacific and affects Southern California, the coastline is going to be more vulnerable because the background climate-driven sea level has already risen and sort of left it primed for any further inundation. If you stand today at the port of Los Angeles on Long Beach and look down at the water, it's about a meter, a meter 50 down, and it requires a very, very large tsunami to overcome that one meter and 50 to make your feet wet. You know, after like a, a meter or so of sea level rise, that additional amplitude that you need from a tsunami is only 50 centimeters. And that is a lot smaller tsunami that you need in order to make your feet wet. And part of the problem is that we're so built up on those edges now, right? It's not that the wave itself is taller. It's just the ocean is higher and the wave is hitting more buildup on the coast. Yes, that's that's correct. We kind of quantified the magnitude of an earthquake that it would take today to cause a certain amount of inundation at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach that would cause billions of dollars of damage. So today you need an earthquake similar to what occurred in 2011 in Japan, so magnitude 9.1, to get tsunami heights at the point where they're causing significant damage at the ports. But in the future, as climate-driven sea level rises and you sort of raise that baseline and make it more vulnerable to inundation, you only need a magnitude 8 to produce the same height tsunami in the area and that same amount of damage. And so that's another really important thing to keep in mind is that in the future, as we raise baseline sea levels, the types of tsunamis that can cause damage along the coast are created by smaller magnitude earthquakes. So the tsunamis can be smaller and cause the same impact because the sea level is higher and that's the sea level that they're acting upon is, is higher and that coastline is more vulnerable. You said there are ways you can alert the public, but it's hard to save infrastructure, right? Yes. So we've become, since World War II, essentially, we've become really, really good in saving lives in disasters such as tsunamis. But because more and more people have moved to the coast, the resulting infrastructure needs to be there. So it's easy to move people out of harm's way. But unfortunately, we have not been so smart to plan for these kind of disasters to occur. So there's a lot of economic damage produced by the infrastructure that is destroyed in coastal regions. What do you think we should do to take this threat more seriously on the West Coast? I think we need to have more radio shows like this. And to some respect, our approach to working with the public has to change. I think in the past, we often came a scientist as an informer. We informed the public about a risk or a potential of risk or something like that. And I think that needs to change to a new paradigm where we sort of co-understand the, the problem or the challenge or the, or the hazard in collaboration with the public. And then what we call co-design a solution and then co-implement the solution so that it's uh, much less of a one-way kind of process, but more of a two-way process where we work in close collaboration with the public from the beginning and not just at the end to give them the information, right? So we learned, for example, when you put something on a map and ask people where their house is, they can most likely locate their house. And then you do like a coloring, you put a coloring on the map, pretending that's some sort of information, okay? And then you ask people to locate their house again, and most likely they will not be able to identify where their house is anymore because they have no connection to that graphic that was being put in front of them. So recently in the Pacific Northwest, there's a new earthquake center funded by the National Science Foundation. It's called the Cascadia Region Earthquake Science Center. And it's doing just what Robert described, is trying to build those relationships between scientists and community planners and government agencies that are in charge of doing things like making tsunami inundation maps and tsunami evacuation and planning tsunami evacuation routes and finding ways to, in places, for example, where evacuation is actually impossible because the tsunami is likely to arrive before people can get out of harm's way, 
doing things like building vertical evacuation towers and using the science to inform where you do that. And so part of the, the charge of the center is to foster these relationships, bring scientists together to sort of bring each other up to speed on what each group is doing and then sort of communicate those findings to these people that can then uh, incorporate them into hazards assessments. Tina Dura and Robert Weiss are Virginia Tech professors of natural hazards. Sea level rise is also endangering white cedar trees on the East Coast, and Robert Atkinson and Linda Manning are trying to save them. They run the Fear to Hope Project, which gets high school students out in the field to help protect white cedar trees from a watery extinction. Robert Atkinson is a biology professor at Christopher Newport University. Linda Manning is a communications professor at Christopher Newport and the director of the Center for Sustainability in Education. Rob, you're trying to save white cedar trees from the encroaching saltwater of the Atlantic. Why is the saltwater encroaching? Is this something new? Well, sea level is rising all along the East Coast, and locally here in southeastern Virginia, it's really happening fast. We have a mixture of land subsiding as well as the sea rising, and together it's bringing salt and flooding into new places. I heard that some of these cedars along the edge of the wetlands where they grow look like ghost forests. What does that mean? What's a ghost forest? The Atlantic white cedar ghost forest phenomenon looks like a bunch of gray sticks at a distance. And then when you move closer, you see that these are totally dead gray trees that remain standing because nothing has blown them down. Amtrak runs up and down the East Coast, so I'll take it when I'm going to visit my family in Washington, D.C., and I would look out the window of the train and think, oh, look at all the, like I would see the water, and then I would see all of these trees that I thought were growing out of the water, and I thought, wow, how did they do that? And I looked a little bit closer, and I'm like, well, they're, they don't seem to have any leaves on them, and I thought, well, maybe it's just the season, and it didn't matter what the season was. It was always these trunks, just bare of branches, and then almost like a like a shadow of what a tree is supposed to really be. I feel like I've seen that when I'm traveling to the outer banks of North Carolina mm-hmm. and I'm on some high bridge and below me and as far as I can see it looks like something out of Jurassic Park, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And it actually really excites me. What's wrong with having ghost forests? What's wrong with the sea encroaching and creating wetlands? and maybe new opportunities for natural life, right? Yeah, absolutely. For Atlantic white cedar, the opportunity of the sunlight striking the forest floor is amazing. And and millions of seedlings that have been resting there waiting for sunlight just burst forward in, in what the old-timers called a dog hair stand. And the trees are mm-hmm. just crazy dense. There can be hundreds in the size of a card table. And that, of course, is wonderful under natural conditions because those trees will self-thin for centuries and create the densest forest in North America. However, if the trees are killed by salt and the salt remains or another dose of salt comes in with another storm, the seedlings may not tolerate that and we get a second killing, and eventually we we outstrip what the soil and the seed refugium can do, and we lose the ecosystem. So you created something called Fear to Hope Project to get high school students working on this problem. What does that mean, fear to hope? Well, fear is the natural human response to feeling something you care about is being threatened. And the more technical term for that, I guess, is eco-anxiety, which can come from anything happening in nature. But in this case, it's sea level rise primarily associated with climate change. And then the hope comes from students gaining agency by contributing meaningful ways, not just repeating the studies of their parents' youth, but rather actually contributing to university research. 
And it's that authenticity that's critical to getting buy-in because you can't kid a kid. If, if they're just doing something for the experience, that's old news. But to actually generate data that professionals care about, that your college mentor who visits your classroom gets so excited about, then I think that's contagious. It's like the beauty of a science fair project, but without the stress. Yeah, (laughs) and not just like the Rube Goldberg device that you made super complicated because some some rubric told you to do it. You're actually working on something that means something to you and you're in your neighborhood. It's the difference between students hearing about the scientific method, and that was probably the single most boring event in most of our high school life to learn that the scientist develops an experimental design. You know, what really happens <laughs> What really happens is we see these forests that are just dead, and we wonder, like, that's not normal. How do we fix it? And without the agency of participation, of course there's eco-anxiety. But the hope is by getting kids actively engaged in the scientific method, making it real, having them work with students to come up with the experimental design. And students look at the data they've got and they think about what it means and then together they write the story and then they share it with their classmates and then with kids from other schools and then with environmental professionals, all the while being helped by their mentors is is really a great thing to be a part of. Help me picture the science One student doing what with a tiny white cedar sapling? Yes, a retired VIMS professor, Dr. Jim Perry, has been working really hard to help simplify this. At its heart, it's incredibly simple. Is how tall are the trees now versus when we started measuring? How thick are the stems now versus last time? And is there a difference between a freshwater control and a seedling that's been exposed to salt, and then how long does that exposure happen? If we alleviate it in a month, do they recover or do they need six months? You know, so these are these are questions that would take us forever to answer in a growth chamber. So what what happened was was really sort of obvious looking back, was we spread out of the growth chamber onto campus. And we created 49 seedlings in pots with seven treatments. And uh, the community was super supportive. We had the president on down. Everybody was involved. And then we're like, this isn't public. Public is high school kids. And can't they measure trees? And so we went to an achievable dream and immediately were embraced. And the kids loved it. And Before that year was out, we had maybe half a dozen schools all over Tidewater, Virginia, from Northern Virginia to North Carolina, engaged in measuring salt response in seedlings. Linda, every year the Fear to Hope project with these high schoolers is capped off with a symposium that brings the students on campus to Christopher Newport University. Is that where they present their research? The symposium is a great opportunity for all these high school students to come together and they make posters before they come here. So that's an exciting thing for them. They'll present their posters to their peers, so the other high school students, their college mentors, There's the college students are part of it, and the environmental professionals. So they're presenting their scientific research to a broader community. And yes, they come onto campus. Sometimes it's the first time they've been onto campus. They get to take a tour and see our 49 seedlings where they're out on the Great Lawn. They get to walk over there and see them in their not-so-native habitat, I guess. Every year it grows a little bit more, and this coming year there's also an art component. The students are creating visual representations of the science in in ways that speak to them. Ooh, do you have anything submitted yet? Yes, we had um, the first couple over a break. One of them was this beautiful oil painting of on the the top was like a forest on the edges on the right and the left side and like lush and green beautiful forest and then as you move towards the center they drew um, the ghost forest these gray trunks that are just bare of leaves and then there's the soil line and underneath the soil line they created a root system and 
the root system was um, you know, like kind of browns and grays, like would you, you would think of a normal root system. And then as you move towards the center of the painting, it became red, almost like veins. And then with some kind of a skull, skulls <laughs> in there. So it was really, um, I thought it was really powerful. In your experience, guys, how do young people feel about climate change? What have you heard from them? What do they say to you? And do you think they're feeling more hopeful or defeated when you talk of them? There's a lot going on in the lives of kids today, and it's hard to know where a concept like climate change competes for space. Our concern is that we can trigger eco-anxiety by sharing the fact of ghost forests with kids who might not have heard of it. But then we realize that there's never any advantage to withholding information, and we just go head on with it and engage them in addressing the problem. And their reaction has been so heartwarming. They're there are teachers who have said that students who never got excited about a topic in science find this project just irresistible and they keep asking when, when we can measure the trees again and, and can we go to a ghost forest? And they're just asking mm. science questions and they showed no interest before. So I think kids are able to see the difference between bad news generally and stuff that's happening closer to home and and I think it means a lot to them to participate in finding a solution. And we honor that. You know, we don't give them pretend research. We give them research. We're anxious to see the results they get. But it is exciting to see how their eyes light up when they tell other kids at the symposium or explain something to an environmental professional who's there. And, and that kind of community woven together is powerful. Yeah, high school students in particular, they have they have a lot of concerns. And I think that eco-anxiety might just be one of many things that are on their minds. And I think the the beauty of this project where they can all be working on the scientific research and then coming together and hearing from their peers that they would otherwise they they wouldn't see somebody from a different high school over a science. I mean, it's a it's a different reason to bring people together. I think it's um I think it's really neat for them to see they have this this common ground that they're all they're working on together. Robert Atkinson is a biology professor at Christopher Newport University. Linda Manning is director of the Center for Sustainability in Education and a communications professor at Christopher Newport University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. My next guest studied the sociology of disasters. Liesl Ritchie and Dwayne Gill have gone around the world talking with people who've had their lives upended by oil spills. They say we process the emotional trauma of natural disasters differently than man-made disasters. Liesl and Dwayne are sociology professors at Virginia Tech. Between one of the earliest disasters you actually went to was the Exxon Valdez in 1989. Right. Remind me of how big that was. Well, the official statistics say that 11 million gallons were spilled by the Exxon Valdez. There are locals who will say almost three times that much was spilled. How old were you when you, when you went there? I think I was 34. Was it shocking? What was shocking was the reactions of the people. I got there about three months after the spill, and they were still in panic mode, trying to figure out how they were going to make the next season work because this fishing season was basically gone, and they didn't know what the future held. So there's lots of uncertainty, lots of anxiety, and people just really concerned about their future and the future of their community. Did they take it out on you at all? Not really. One person was very defensive. When I told him what I was doing, he said, why aren't you out there cleaning that blankety-blank up? And I said, well, there's lots of people out there working on the oil spill cleanup, but I'm concerned about what's happening to the people. That's why I'm here. I want to find out what's happening to people like you and your neighbors. He said, you are? Well, come on in. Let's talk. 
So, you know, there was a little bit of defensiveness very early when you first encountered some people, but most people were very welcoming and most people want to tell their stories. Lisa, what about you? Which disaster for you was sort of early and impactful? My first study of a disaster was also of the Exxon Valdez, but I didn't come on the scene until about 10 years later. One person shared with me that trying to clean up that oil spill was trying to clean up a bathtub with a Q-tip that had had oil spilled in it. It was not only their livelihoods, but it was their culture. It was their way of life. Crime rates increased. Drug and alcohol abuse increased. There were increases in instances of domestic violence. And a lot of the people in Cordova went out to work on the spill. And one of the most interesting things that we saw was that people who were living in Cordova who might have been working at a grocery store there or working at one of the small motels there, they were out trying to make money working on the cleanup. And it was hard for local businesses to find people who could take up the slack and actually fill those jobs that were being taken over by working on on the oil spill cleanup. Are spills better now? I mean, when there is a spill, is the impact less traumatic for a community? Absolutely not. So the Deepwater Horizon oil spill is a perfect example of lessons we did not learn following the Exxon Valdez oil spill. That spill took place in 2010 in the northern Gulf of Mexico when the Macondo wellhead exploded and 11 individuals were killed on the drilling rig. And the oil spill continued at this leak of a a pipe, essentially, continued until from April 20th of 2010 through the middle of September because they could not figure out a way to cap that wellhead. We're still seeing the impacts in certain pockets in the northern Gulf of Mexico, just like we see different groups of people being affected differently in terms of the longer-term damages, we're still seeing the same kinds of longer-term damages in the northern Gulf of Mexico. Do you think natural disasters, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, are more emotionally impactful on people than man-made disasters like these oil spills? The empirical research would suggest that technological or human-caused events from human hazards are actually more emotionally challenging for many individuals and groups of people than what we would call the so-called natural disasters. The kinds of damages we hear emotionally and the stress levels tend to continue for longer periods of time. They persist and tend to be much more chronic. So the kinds of things that we see are related to post-traumatic stress disorder. The measures that we use can compare across different events and different spills in particular. And what we see is that those kinds of emotional stressors, avoidance behaviors, not wanting to talk about the event, not wanting to think about the event, not wanting to go to places that remind them of the event, not wanting to interact with other people that remind them of the sadness and the destruction of the event, the data that we have show that involvement in litigation associated with this kind of disaster is as stressful, Mm. if not more so, for some people than the actual event itself. You found that people can get over some of the emotional trauma of a natural, horrific disaster in a couple of years, but can take decades to get over the man-made kind. What would cause that difference? The key issue is that the human-caused events are seen as being preventable. And the fact that nobody prevented what should have in their minds or could have been prevented is the real trigger for people And that's, again, bringing us back to the litigation because people see that as being something that could be wrapped up more quickly, that could be moved on from 
in a more timely way. And so that human involvement, that finger pointing, that blame, that laying of responsibility at the feet of BP or Exxon Valdez, or in the case of other toxic contamination events, that tends to really be harmful in the ways that people think about it. Like, if only this individual, or more particularly, this company, this entity, had done something differently. You know, we talk about the power of forgiveness, that that there are things that eat our souls, and anger and blame do eat us up inside. What have you learned about human nature when it comes to these disasters and the power of those feelings? The most impactful statement that I ever heard was when I was interviewing a man who said to me that he didn't actually blame Exxon for behaving the way they were behaving in terms of avoiding responsibility and avoiding wanting to pay compensation and damages. He said, you can't expect a snake not to behave like a snake. And he essentially said, that is the way I have been able to move on from this. It's inevitable for corporations in particular to protect their own interests, to look out for themselves. Most people refer to it as the Deepwater Horizon. BP did such an amazing job in terms of their PR that they extracted their name from being associated with it. And I know this isn't necessarily part of all this conversation, but in different circles, these different events are referred to in different ways, precisely because of blame and responsibility, legal issues, and taking on that responsibility that is well-placed in the cases of these disaster events. What good is it for the two of you to do this kind of study? I mean, what practical effect might it have for others down the road or the people that you're studying now? So one of the things that came out of the Exxon Valdez work was a peer listener program where we taught local informal leaders basically how to listen to their fellow citizens, vent, complain, whatever they wanted to say, but guide them toward professional help if they needed it. This program was taken to the Gulf of Mexico after the Deepwater Horizon. More than 50 communities across the Gulf of Mexico received this kind of peer listener training. And what they do is they learn, first of all, the unique factors of a technological disaster, how it's different than natural disasters, how the emotional and the psychological toll is greater in most cases. So be prepared. This is not unusual. I think part of it is people think, I'm the only one that's ever experienced anything like that. So part of what we can do is say, you know, here's the study, here's the study, here's another case. So you're not alone feeling the way that you're feeling. To me, that's one of the great things that came out of our work with the Exxon Valdez was the development of this program that then found a lot of footing after the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Is it tough on you to go in where people are suffering and know that you're not there for humanitarian aid, but you are there to study, understand, and, and help in future cases, let's say? But it, does it hurt you to realize, I can't clean it up? I can't be the psychological counselor. I'm not the peer listener. Yeah, it's it's uh, it can be difficult, but we go in knowing that we're not going to save the world. But at the same time, I think one of our selling points for getting people to agree to be involved or participate in a survey or participate in an interview, you know, we may not be able to help you, but the information that we get from you and your community might help the next person or the next community that experiences this. And then so when we can go back and say to our Exxon Valdez uh, participants, remember when you filled out that survey? You remember when you did that interview? Look what's happening on the Gulf of Mexico right now with the peer listener program that came out of our research. Your involvement in this research even though it may not have affected you and improved your life, it's helping others. 
So we try to do the pay it forward kind of thinking, you know, help us help the next people who will be experiencing these types of events. It is difficult to go in and say, man, you know, we knew that this was a possibility. We knew this was a possibility on the northern Gulf of Mexico. Anywhere there's this kind of development activity, there are these human-caused hazards, these human-related events. And knowing that and being able to share information that can help people navigate on the front end how to either prevent those negative social impacts or to be prepared for them has been an important part of the findings of our work over the years. Remember last February when scores of cars from a Norfolk Southern freight train overturned in Ohio and spilled all kinds of hazardous materials? What were your thoughts when that happened about this kind of need that the communities would need there? So you're referring to the East Palestine, Ohio event, and that was a situation where we went, here we go again. People are not necessarily prepared in that community for what's going to happen as the weeks and the months and the years unfold. Because what was going to happen was what? They might have come together at the very beginning as a unified group, but over time, these issues of responsibility and blame and could have this been prevented and people claiming, oh, it's not so bad in my neighborhood. Others saying my neighborhood has been destroyed. My property values have gone down. And so these social fissures that we see in communities continue to become more and more and more divisive over time. And that's what you're seeing play out in the media as we go on coming into a, a year. It's so important what you're sharing with us. Liesl and Duane, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. You're welcome. Thank you. Liesl Ritchie and Duane Gill are sociology professors at Virginia Tech. Liesl Ritchie is also director of the Center for Coastal Studies there. Disasters often hit historically marginalized communities the hardest. My next guest is helping ensure equitable outcomes for vulnerable communities impacted by disaster. Nikina Douglas-Glenn is director of the Research Institute for Social Equality at Virginia Commonwealth University. Nikina, when I think of natural disasters, I think of FEMA and Homeland Security. Are poor and marginalized communities getting as much help as they warrant when disaster strikes from these agencies? Sometimes you'll see that they are, but often not. And so if you think about a community, for example, like Buchanan County, that community had been very hard hit with natural disasters. It's a very low income community. And so when we think about issues of equity, our mind doesn't necessarily go to rural counties in our state or across our country or low-income counties because we've been conditioned to think about equity as a racial issue. Tell me about Buchanan County. Is that in Virginia? Have you been there? Yes, it is in Virginia. I consider it probably Southwest Virginia. I went to school in the southwestern part of the state. The rural community, they have their own set of challenges, but also strengths as well. But when we have this conversation around equity, um, oftentimes they tend to be left out of the conversation. So for us as an institute, it really is about promoting and elevating those marginalized communities to make sure that they have access to the resources that they need. They had to deal with a lot of flooding in those areas. Uh, they lost a lot of personal property, a lot of businesses. And so what they were having to then contend with is the aftermath of that. You know, we've experienced this kind of disaster. And now how do we how do we move forward from that? And that's really where the issue around equity comes into play. Because now what they're having to do is navigate those bureaucratic systems, those infrastructure that oftentimes aren't designed for marginalized communities. Uh, there's heavy burdens of paperwork. There's heavy burdens of infrastructure. And if they don't have a community navigator, a designated emergency management employee to help them get through that process, oftentimes they're left to fend for themselves. One of the first projects RISE worked on 
was related to equitable access to COVID vaccines back when vaccines were first coming out. Tell me about that. This had to do with the age of the people who would benefit most from vaccines. Yes. So we were fortunate enough to work with the governor's office, the Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, and the Virginia Department of Emergency Management as they were developing their strategy and approach to give out vaccines across the state. And one of the things that we noticed very early on is that like many states, Virginia was really taking a a targeted approach at what the news essentially was telling us who our most vulnerable was. So it, it was largely seniors. It was largely individuals over the age of about 73, 74 who were impacted. And so, you know, we were living our, our everyday lives and thinking, oh, this doesn't impact me. I don't have anything to worry about. But then what we really began to see, you know, around March 2020 and April, as we moved in, this wasn't just an infection that was impacting individuals who were at that age. But our vaccine protocol, our vaccine plans, and the way that the state in particular thought about distributing their vaccinations, oh, we're going to give it to everyone over the age of, I believe it was 73. And so what we begin to say, we start to challenge that, to say, well, you know, that's problematic when you think about life expectancy for many communities of color, for low-income communities, and for these marginalized communities that we've already talked about, their life expectancy isn't to the age of 73. Uh, In many places, they're not expected to live beyond the age of 68. So if you've automatically put a threshold of 73, then you've cut out a large part of the population who is vulnerable because of proximity, of where they live, being frontline workers, but they don't have access to the vaccines that they needed. And so VDEM, Virginia Department of Emergency Management and the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion asked us to come in to really help them think about what does an equity rollout of vaccinations look like across the state. And so we helped them focus on the most vulnerable communities, thinking about here in Richmond and the Petersburg Crater Health District and going out into the Martinsville, Henry County area and really trying to make sure the communities that also needed the vaccinations were at the front of the narrative as well and weren't left behind. Virginia was a leader in this space. Uh, We were stood up as a national model by the National Governors Association because we took a very strategic approach to the way that we delivered vaccines across the state. I think people are often confused by a focus on racial justice and equity in circumstances like this. And they think, you know, everybody will be taken care of in due time. Good things will come for people waiting their turn. Is that the case? I'd say yes and no. And so the phrase waiting your turn might be a little bit of a misnomer only because racial and ethnic minorities have always been told to wait their turn. And so when you think about equity, it's not necessarily about waiting your turn, but it really is about how do we think about this particular circumstance, you know, whether it's vaccinations, whether it's housing policy or any of these, you know, climate change, how do we make sure that there are policies that exist that promote fairness, that promote justice, and really help us think about the way that we make decisions. It seems to be old hat that we've always thought about certain groups as being first in line historically when it comes to the distribution of resources, when it comes to the way that we develop public policy. And what we're saying is, you know, let's really shift our thinking and shift our focus and saying, why does this group always get to go first? Maybe in this particular circumstance, you know, think about the vaccinations, we were asking folks, who were frontline workers to be out in society to provide the services that many people still needed. And so why shouldn't they be at the front of the line and be the most protected because they're having to come into contact with the ordinary citizen at that time who should have been sitting at home, you know? And so I don't want to get into this space where it's sort of this hurdle where we're saying, okay, you get to go first. And because you get to go first, I don't. What we have to think about this is more of a, how do I make sure that we all have access to the resources that we need in a society, you know, where we think about democratic values, that's fair and just. So at the end of the day, my family, your family are all whole in the end. I think that is so wise. What is interesting you now as director of RISE, 
Where are you focusing your attention now? At this moment, we are looking at a project on the lived experiences of black girls in the city of Richmond. That's a study that does interviews. We're doing focus groups. And what we're really trying to understand is uh, what's the experience? What does it mean to be a teenage girl in today's society, particularly a teenage black girl. We don't often tell the stories of children of color, and we don't always tell those stories. And we have so many great girl programs here, in the, particularly in the city. We have really great girls who are doing wonderful things. And we wanted to amplify their stories, the stories of their parents, the stories of their communities, and really try to understand the models uh, for success with this population and hope that we can then take our understanding of those models and begin to replicate them in other cities across the state and nationwide. That is such a good and needed project. Nakina Douglas-Glenn, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Nakina Douglas-Glenn is director of the Research Institute for Social Equality and a professor at the Douglas Wilder School of Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costa was our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to With Good Reason Radio. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.